seated. Let's start this morning in Mark chapter 11. We've been teaching a series for the last several weeks on the subject of faith. And these services are intended to build upon one another. And so if you haven't been with us, you've missed half your life. (laughs) Now if you haven't been with us, it would be good for you to hear what was said. But then at the same time, we're going to recap some things as we go um, to relay a foundation to go further. So in talking about this subject called faith, it is an all-important subject. In fact, in one respect, it's the most important subject in the Bible. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, you can't find anywhere where the Bible says without love, it's impossible to please God. Most of the time, we focus on the fact that love is the all-important thing, and you can't overemphasize the importance of it, that's for sure. But the Bible specifically says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, let me take a little side journey for the last part of that verse. Those that come to God must believe that he is. What does that mean? Well, the only thing it could possibly mean is that we must believe that he is the I am. You remember when uh, God was talking to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses had been instructed to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses asked the question, but who are you? What am I going to do when they say, who said so? What name do you go by? And he said, I am that I am. That means he is everything that he has to be to deliver us, to restore us. He is everything that needs to be in your life and in mine. And in the next part he said, we must not not only believe that he is, believe that he is everything that he says he is in the word, in other words, but we must also believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now think about that for a second, folks. God requires you to believe that he's a rewarder of you. God requires you to think and believe, to understand that he is our rewarder. Now, folks, if he is, if he is the great I am, that means he's all-powerful. Certainly, he's the creator of the universe. And so we could look at that in any number of ways. God could have set this up any way that he wanted to. In other words, he could be saying, you must believe that I am the, the creator of the universe that I am the great I am, and so you better be afraid that you don't do the wrong thing and I'll wipe you out. No, God's power, God's unreachable ability, everything that he is and everything that he has revealed himself to be is for the purpose of you and I believe to believe that he's good to us, to be our rewarder, Now, that word reward literally means the one who pays you. I'm not sure how to say it. I think it's the word remunerator or something like that. But it means the one who pays us, the one who satisfies us, the one who gives us that which we need to increase us in every respect, in every area of life. So faith must be a pretty important thing. If you can't please God without it, if you can't receive from God without it, then it must be pretty important. 
We know that uh, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, we looked at the fact that Paul said, I say, to the grace, I say unto you, by the grace that is given un, unto me by God, that you not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And that doesn't mean just think about ourselves. It means shouldn't, we shouldn't think about anything more highly than we ought to think. But to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That means all of us have a measure of the faith that created the world. We have a measure of the mountain-moving faith. We have a measure of the, the faith that created the universe. We know also from Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, we saw that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So we know a little bit about what faith is. We know also how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by putting the word of God first place in our lives, giving attention to it. We know that faith can grow. We've seen in the Bible where, Paul, uh, where Jesus spoke about, the scripture speaks about great faith and little faith. It speaks about strong faith and weak faith. There are 12 different characteristics that the Bible identifies regarding faith. And all of them have something to do with the measure of faith or the increase of faith from the measure that we begin with. And so faith can grow. We ought to want faith to grow. Paul commended the Thessalonian church because their faith grew exceedingly. Well, we should also always have an ever-increasing faith then by hearing the word and acting on it. We've also found some other things about faith. We found out from Luke chapter 17 that faith is our servant and that faith speaks. Jesus is talking to his disciples about forgiveness and he uses an example of how often they should forgive and their response is, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith for that. Forgiveness, if we're supposed to forgive somebody seven times 70 or 490 times for doing us wrong on purpose, then you're going to have to increase our faith for that. But then Jesus said something about faith that's vitally important. He said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the sycamine tree, be, uprooted by, be pulled up by the roots and cast into the sea, and it should obey you. In other words, it's saying faith in any level, on any level, faith in any measure or every measure, faith speaks. Faith speaks. If you have faith, you will say. If you have faith, even as a grain of mustard seed, the smallest seed known to man, then you would say. Faith speaks. We've seen in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood. When she heard of Jesus... She came to where he was and fought through the crowd to touch his garment because she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Well, she did. She pushed through and touched him. And it says straightway she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. The healing power of God went out of Jesus and into her. Jesus, immediately knowing that something had happened, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, everybody's touching your clothes. Everybody's touching you any way that they can. That's why this crowd is pressing upon us. And Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, this is Mark chapter 5, verse 34. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Well, what did her faith do? Her faith said, when she heard of Jesus, she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. So her faith spoke. Her faith took action. Her faith received the things of God.
Now, in Mark chapter 11, we want to go a little bit further and identify some characteristics about faith. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has walked by a certain place going to, from Jerusalem to Bethany. And on the way, there was a, uh, a fig tree. And this fig tree looked like it had fruit on it. It had leaves on it like it should. And so it should, be, uh, should have fruit on the tree as well. But it doesn't have anything on it. And there's no fruit on it. So it was just for show. It looked fruitful, but it wasn't. Folks, we have to make sure that that's not the way our lives are. There's a big difference in looking fruitful and having fruit on it. I've got a peach tree in my backyard that I planted, um, oh, I don't know, five years ago, maybe something like that, four or five years, maybe. And I've never been able to get much fruit off of it. Well, this year, it has absolutely taken off. It has grown in size up and out tremendously. And it's a beautiful tree, but there's hardly any fruit on it at all. Well, that frustrated me. I wanted the peaches. I planted this thing because I wanted peaches. And it's, like I said, it's beautiful. It gives us a lot of privacy from the house behind us. It's big. It's full. It looks gorgeous. But it doesn't have much fruit on it. It's got a couple, but not, nothing really to speak of. And so I, in my frustration, I started going to the, uh, looking online, trying to find out about, about peach trees. And I found out what the problem is. The problem is it hasn't been pruned. And so all the things that should have been pruned away are all now big and green and fluffy and beautiful. And so I've got a choice. I can either have a tree that looks good or I can have a tree that produces fruit. So next spring, I'm going to have to have somebody come in and prune that thing down. That loses all of its leaves in the winter. And so just about the time that the leaves will be coming back, I've got to prune this thing back, prune this tree back a lot. And it's not going to look good at all. It'll wind up looking like a small peach tree, but it'll have fruit on it. Well, Jesus looked at the fig tree and cursed it because trees are supposed to provide. Circumstances and situations in this life, everything about this life, everything about this earth is supposed to produce for your benefit. Folks, God made the earth in a perfect condition, and it was perfect until Adam and Eve fell. But even in its fallen state, the earth was designed. God's purpose didn't change. And so the earth is designed to produce and provide for you just like it was before the fall. Everything in your life is supposed to be a fruitful circumstance. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Everything about life is supposed to work for us, not against us. So, next morning they came back by where that tree was, and it was dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said, Master, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And notice what Jesus answered. He answered in verse 22, Have faith in God. Now that can also be translated, Have the faith of God. From that, we sometimes coin the phrase, the God kind of faith. Have the God kind of faith. Well, the faith of God would have to be the God kind of faith, wouldn't it? What other kind of faith would God have other than the God, have, the God kind? Well, we know what that God kind of faith did. That God kind of faith spoke the world into existence. Remember, faith speaks. And so the God kind of faith always speaks. 
And Jesus explains that. He tells them what the God kind of faith is. Verse 23, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now you said some more, but let's stop there for the time being and talk about the next point or the next characteristic of faith. We know faith can grow. We know we start with a measure of faith. We know that measure of faith speaks. Our faith always speaks. You can always tell where you are in faith by what you're saying. Now Jesus says faith is of the heart. Notice again, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Notice that phrase. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Well, if he's talking about not doubting in our heart, then he must be talking about believing with the heart. Faith is of the heart. Faith is always of the heart. Now, the Bible talks about this in, in a lot of different ways. Paul talked about in several places, to several, in several of the letters that he wrote to the churches, he talked about the inward man versus the outward man. He talked about the struggle he had in Romans chapter 7. He talked about the struggle he had between his flesh and his, the real man, man on the inside, the real person on the inside, his heart or his spirit. He identified that even though he was born again, even though he was filled with the spirit, he still had a conflict where his flesh wanted to do the wrong things and his spirit wanted to do the right things. He talks about the inward man and the outward man. He talks about keeping the inward man or controlling the outward man by the inward man. But Peter says something. I want you to look with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter makes a comment here by the Holy Ghost that I want to draw your attention to. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without or apart from the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. The conversation doesn't mean speech. It means manner of life. He says people are watching our lives, particularly people that live close to you. And so you can affect, here he's telling the wives, to affect their husband's eternal well-being by living right and living the, the, uh, in a godly manner in front of them. While they hold, behold your chaste conversation, again, that's manner of life, coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. But verse 4, notice verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a weak and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So he talks about this hidden man of the heart being the spirit. The man on the inside, there's a man on the inside of you. The real you is looking out of these windows that we call eyes into the world around us. The hidden man of the heart. Well, what's he hidden from? He's hidden from the five physical senses. He's hidden from the five physical senses. So this hidden man of the heart, this faith which is of the heart, which is of the hidden man, is the spirit of man. Now, in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Even in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of God understood that their understanding or their reasoning faculties is not the way that God leads you. 
It's not the real you. Now, the hidden man of the heart is, is not always hidden from the reasoning ability of man. We can understand and gain knowledge from the truth of the word to know how these things work. And it's vitally important, in my opinion, it's vitally important for us to understand God's system. When God created the world, God showed us that he's a God of systems. He's a God of systems. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. We know that in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, Genesis 1-1. But then it says in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Well, here where it says, And the world was without form and void, Isaiah chapter 45 says God didn't create it that way. So it became that way somehow, some way or somehow. And God said, first thing God did is he spoke. The power of the Holy Ghost was available, but not until the word was spoken. So the word directed God's power. God's words directed his power. Now, as the creator of the heavens and the earth, he had ultimate authority over everything. But notice the way he exercised that authority to recreate the earth. He said, let there be light. Now, folks, gravity always, has already got to be in place. If there was no gravity, there wouldn't have been any water on the earth. Everything would have just been out in the middle of space in nothingness. So when God said, let there be light, there were already some physical laws in motion that were left over from the original creation. Now, I don't know what the original creation was. The Bible gives us some hints about some things. It leads us to believe that the devil, Lucifer, had a much greater position or had a great position in the, the, the first creation because it says that when Satan rebelled against God, one of the things that he said was, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. Well, he must have had a throne. And that throne must have been below the heavens. The Bible also tells us that when the time comes where we look upon Satan and see him for who he really is, we'll be amazed that this runt was able to create so much havoc and so much problems in the earth. We'll look at him, the scripture says, and say, is this the one that caused so much trouble? Is this the one that destroyed cities? Now, the destruction of cities must refer to the first creation in some way or another. And so if there were cities under the first creation, there had to have been somebody to inhabit those cities. Now, we know that wasn't man. That couldn't have been man. Because when God made man, the Psalms tell us that the angels looked at them, the creation or God's plan of creation for mankind and responded by saying, what is man? You're going to do what? God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Well, the angels, Old Testament and New Testament tells us this, the angels looked at God and said, what is man? You're going to make somebody to have authority on the earth? You're going give to the, give the earth over to somebody after what's happened in the original creation and the destruction that it brought? Now, whatever else was there, we don't know. The Bible talks about Satan being lifted up because of his beauty. He was lifted up because of the trafficking that he was 
involved in and responsible for, and that word trafficking just simply means merchandising. So there, there was some kind of operable system in the earth that came to naught and wound up being destroyed. So when God says, let there be light, he says, let there be a firmament in the heavens. In other words, let there be a sky. When he starts dividing things and creating things, or recreating things, really, when he begins the recreation of the earth as identified in Genesis chapter 1, he's putting systems in place. He doesn't tell us about the intricacies of the things that are necessary for the earth to produce grass, for example. But the system that governs growth is put in practice or put in play, put in existence by God simply speaking his word, speaking his desire through words, and it comes to pass. Ten times in the Genesis chapter 1, it tells us God said something and it happened. Well, when it happened, God is creating systems. He's creating physical laws. He's changing things. He doesn't tell us about the systems. Science has come to the place where we're able to identify some of the intricacies and the details of this creation. And I don't know how it affects other people, but when I read about these things and see how just one degree's difference, one way or the other, would have affected the earth in such a, uh, impacted the earth in such a tremendous way that the earth would not have been able to sustain life. There are so many things that are just right on the edge that, of, of life or death in a, variety of, uh, in a variety of things that it causes me to realize and accept and understand and glorify God even more because there had to be a creator. Science calls it intelligent design. Well, that intelligent design is not just the creation of the things that are identified in Genesis 1, chapter 1. It's also the systems that keep those things going. The Bible says the world is upheld by the power of God's word. It's upheld. All these systems that we know of as the laws of physics, all those things were spoken into existence. Faith speaks. The Bible says that it's faith that created the world. Paul writing to the Hebrews in chapter 11 says, we understand that through faith the worlds were created so that the things which, were, which do appear were made from things that, we, that do not appear. And that just simply means the things that we can see and feel here on the earth. Everything that we can see and feel here on the earth was created by something you can't see and feel. Which are words. Which was God's faith in action. We see something else about the scripture regarding faith. It says five times that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Well, if faith always speaks, then we could... Put those together and say, the just shall live by their confession. The just shall live by what they say. The just shall live by what they speak. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is talking about the conditions of the earth at the time the trouble and the persecution that's coming against the church. Let's start reading in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Paul says, For which cause we faint not, 
But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. This outward man is aging. This outward man is decaying. Thank God we have scriptures in the Bible about renewing our youth so that we can push back on some of that aging and decaying process. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The word temporal means subject to change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Folks, that's saying that everything about this physical realm, everything about this natural realm, everything we can see and feel and experience with our physical bodies is all subject to change. Now, if it's subject to change, that means it can be changed by faith. We know that the earth is going to pass away. We know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so we know in that respect that the, earth, the heavens and the earth will both change. But faith changes things. And so anything and everything in this natural realm can be changed by faith. It can be changed by your confession of God's word. James said it this way when he wrote to the church. He said the man that's able to contain, uh, control his tongue is able to control his whole body. So controlling your tongue means guarding what you say. Saying or speaking the right things will enable you to control every aspect of your body. Faith speaks. Faith is the exercise of authority. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 7. Notice again before you leave here in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, let's look at verse 18 again. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The Bible commands us to look at things that are not seen. Now that seems like a paradox or a riddle to some people. But it simply means look past the physical realm to the eternal realm. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. Well, if we look then at the word of God, which is spirit words, which are spirit words, if we keep our eyes and keep our focus on the, what the word of God says, that's looking at things that are not seen. We focus our attention on things that are not seen. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Let's start in verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered, this is a Roman soldier. He's a, uh, a captain of a uh, company of a hundred. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, Go, and he goes. And to another comes, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now the implication is, he should have found this faith in Israel, among the Jews. But he didn't. 
Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about the Gentiles coming into salvation. He said many of the Jews will reject it. But the Gentiles from every direction shall come in and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of faith. Paul writing to the church said, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, Israel, spiritual Israel, is anybody that receives Jesus as Lord and Savior and comes into the family of God, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Now what was it about this guy's understanding that, mar that made Jesus marvel. What did this guy know? This guy understood that authority was exercised by words. That's what made Jesus marvel. This guy understood that authority was exercised through words. Now we take that for granted. Those of us that study and know these things understand these things through the teaching of the word. But Jesus marveled at that. He marveled at somebody having figured out it wasn't even a Jew, wasn't a keeper of the law of Moses. The reason, according to, um, I think it's Luke's account of this uh, same story, the Jews there in Capernaum where he was said that this man had built them a temple. Well, the Old Testament uh, instruction that God gave to Abraham was I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So this man was a blessing to the Jews. He was a blessing to the children of Abraham, the physical children of Abraham. And so the Jews were all in favor of Jesus doing something to help him. They were encouraging Jesus to go to his house. But the centurion stopped that. He said, you don't have to come to my house. Exercise of authority doesn't depend on physical presence. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus is floored by that. He marvels at this man's great faith. And notice he called it great faith. What made this man's faith great? He understood that authority was exercised by words. He understood that we're governed by the words that we speak. He understood that Jesus had healing power. But that, that healing power could and should be directed through the words of our mouths. He understood that the exercise of authority was through words. Folks, that's everything. When God created the world, he created systems. He created a system whereby we could know him and receive from him. The only thing that we can ever know about God is what he reveals himself to us. That's the only thing that mankind could ever have as far as understanding about God. You can't reach God on your own. Mankind, once the law of sin and death came upon the earth through Adam and Eve's transgression, mankind was hopelessly lost unless God inserted himself back into the picture, which he did. He inserted himself by appearing to Abraham and giving him instruction by promising something. He said, if you'll follow me, if you'll go where I tell you to go, I'll make you rich. He said, I'll bless you, but the Bible says in Proverbs that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. 
So he said, I'll bless you and I'll make you a blessing and I'll provide you seed or descendants. God is inserting himself back into mankind, back into this earth. But remember, God's plan hadn't changed. God's original plan was for man to have authority on the earth. And that didn't change with the fall of man. So when God brings himself to Abraham, he makes him an offer. But it's up to Abraham to accept or reject. Thank God Abraham accepted. And from that point, the only thing that we can possibly know about God is what he reveals to us. That's why the word of God is so important. Because it's a revelation of who God is. You know the Bible says that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody, every human being will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what are we going to be judged by? The Bible says our works will be judged whether they were uh, temporal or temporary or eternal works. Well, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my words. He said, he that loveth me is the one that keeps my commandments. If you put those things together, folks, the only possible thing that we could be judged by is whether or not we kept the word. So all of us are going to be faced with the same question when we stand before the Lord. Did you keep my word? Did you keep my word? The keeping of God's word is the exercise of faith. And so many Christians, here's the, the tragedy about this. So many Christians not understanding the system that God has established, and I'm talking about the system of receiving from God by faith. So many people are going to be judged by a word that they don't even know. They're going to be judged as to whether or not they kept God's word. And the Bible holds such a small place in their life, if any at all, that they're going to face judgment for why they did not keep, why they did not study, why they did not pursue the revelation that God provided of himself to us. What a tragedy that's going to be. No wonder the Bible says God will have to wipe away every tear. I used to look at that and say, what are people going to cry about in heaven? But when I realized that they're going to be judged by a word that they refuse or judged by a word that they fail to keep or judged by the word that they don't even give attention to, there's going to be a lot of weeping in heaven. There's going to be a lot of weeping in heaven. Now, folks, turn back with me to Numbers chapter 13. Faith is of the heart. Faith is of the hidden man, the inward man. Let's look at an example of how this works. Numbers chapter 13 tells us, well, the Bible tells us that the things that happened to Israel are types and shadows. They're for examples. They are examples for us. And this is one of the great examples that we have record of in all of Scripture. It tells us about how that God told Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land. Now, this promised land was the land of Canaan. It was a land that God told them all the time that they were in the, uh, the wilderness, the journey from Egypt 
after they were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. You remember how that worked. They came to the Red Sea and the sea parted and Israel went over on dry ground. But when Pharaoh's armies chased after them, the waters came together and killed the army. Now, the, the Egyptian army was the strongest army, the strongest military force on the face of the earth. And they were delivered without throwing an arrow or shooting an arrow or throwing a spear or anything else. They didn't even have to throw rocks. God removed the enemy from them. And he told them that he was taking them to the promised land. He tried to prepare them. He told them that there were going to be Amorites and Ammonites and Hittites and Jebusites. He told them that there were people that lived in this land. But that he had given them the land and he was going to lead them to it. So they get to the edge of the promised land. The 12 spies go into the promised land. Stayed there for 40 days. Beginning in verse 25, Numbers 13, 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation. And showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whether thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. It's just like God said. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Well, God told them all those people were going to be there. We read the story, and if we don't connect it to what's already happened, then it looks to us like the uh, 10 of the 12 spies are really surprised to find out people live in that land. But God has told them on three different occasions through Moses. He told them that this is a land that's inhabited by these people. Well, that didn't seem to bother God when he said that the land was theirs. They could very easily have identified, well, this land is just like God said, and the people are there, but remember he promised it to us, and look at what he did to Pharaoh's army when they were against us. They could very easily have taken the position that we don't have anything to worry about here, folks. Two of them did. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, why does Caleb think that they're able to overcome it? He's not looking at the military might of Israel. Israel doesn't even have an army to speak of. They've just come out as a slave community or slave group, anywhere from 2 to 7 million people, led from the bondage of Egypt. They don't have any soldiers. It's not like the, the, uh, the Jews brought their army with them. They didn't have an army in Israel, or in Egypt, excuse me. They didn't have an army while they were slaved in, in, uh, slaves in Egypt. They don't have an army now. And so Caleb says, We're, we can do it. His willingness to go into the land to possess it, his confession that they're able to possess it, has to be based on just what God told Moses. That's all the revelation they have. That's all the information they have. That's all he's going on. So look at the difference between the people. You've got ten of the spies saying, we can't take it because the cities are too big and they've got walls around the cities. What are they looking at? They're looking at the people and the walls. What is Caleb looking at? Caleb doesn't say, oh, they're lying to you. There aren't really cities and walls around there. 
He doesn't say, oh, they're just pulling your leg. There's not enemies in this land. He just simply says, let's go take the land. We're able to do this. He's looking at something or he's seeing something that the others don't see. What does he see? Well, let's keep reading and see if we can find out. But the men that went up with him, that's the ten, said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now you're going to find out the last part of that verse is not true. That's not what they looked at, looked like to the enemies of Israel. We know the end result of this story. They failed to go in to take the promised land, and so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years later, they come back around to this same exact spot, and they go in, they send two spies in at that point in time to represent Caleb and Joshua, the two that were in faith. They send two spies in there, they get into the city. They find Rahab, who's a harlot that lives on the wall. These walls were so big and so thick. Uh, archaeological, archaeological digs and finds have identified that these walls are 100 feet tall and 50 feet thick. They were quite impressive. And so Rahab, the harlot who lives on top of one of these walls, the tops of the walls must have been like the slum area of town, she makes a statement that tells us what the people really thought. She says, the people here are afraid of you. Because we heard what he did, what God did for you when you crossed the Red Sea. Now, folks, that was a 40-year-old event. Actually, 42-year-old event. It took them about two years to get from the Red Sea, to, uh, passing through the Red Sea on dry land. It took them about two years to get from there through Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. So when Rahab the harlot says, we're afraid of you and we know the city is yours, she's talking about something that happened 42 years before. Well, if they were still afraid of them 42 years later, what do you think they were here 40 years before when they're at the edge of the promised land? Folks, I want you to understand something. I want to make this as clear and simple as possible. The devil will always use false information provided by what you can see and feel to try to talk you out of taking hold of God's promise. The devil used the size of the walls around the city, which turned out to be absolutely nothing. Because 40 years later, when they take the promised land, Israel at that time does have an army. And they take the Ark of the Covenant and put it out front of the army. And they walk around the wall one time each day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And then they shout. Joshua said, shout for the victory is yours. And the walls fell down flat. Now, folks, if the wall is 100 feet tall but 50 feet, th 50 feet thick, if it falls down this way, they've still got a 50-foot barrier. But where the Bible says... The walls fell down flat. It literally means the earth opened up and the walls went straight down. And it made a smooth pathway for them to go in. But the people 
meaning the 12 spies, 10 of the 12 spies, they saw something that they allowed to remove the promise of God from their lives or from their expectation. What they saw, the physical circumstances of what they saw, deprived them, not because of God's doing, but because of their own action. It deprived them of the promised land. Now, folks, remember, God's eternal purpose for mankind is to have authority here on the earth. So God's not the one that decides whether they take the promised land. They are. And how do they decide to take the promised land? Or how do they decide to reject the promised land? By what they say. Now, folks, since the promised land is a type of the life that we now live in, with the benefits and blessings of the Christian life as obtained by Jesus and his sacrifice. The reason this is an example for us and the reason it's such a perfect example for us is that no matter what barriers are in your way, no matter what obstacles you face, no matter what the circumstances are, you, because you've been given authority here on this earth, you're the one that decides whether you take them or lose them. Chapter 14 of Numbers tells us what happened next. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. It was too late for that. Or would God we had died in the wilderness. Bingo. Certainly not too late for that. And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us have another pastor and we'll go start our own church. <laughs> and they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Just as this is an example for us that we have what we say. That what we say is our faith speaking. And what we believe for and confess will come to pass in our lives. Just like this is an example of that. It's also an example that people that refuse to operate in faith get mad when you do. So often, people, and it's particularly the, uh, the people that have just received, whether they're baby Christians or people that just get filled with the Holy Ghost, they're so excited and so blessed to have what they got from God that they want everybody to know. Well, everybody doesn't care. And a lot of those people that you want to bless and you want to let know how good God is, a lot of those people will speak against you and turn against you because you're willing to reach out in faith and take hold of something that God said is yours. Might as well face it now. No point in being disappointed down the road. Understand that up front. Then Moses and Aaron, verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly and the congregation of the children of Israel and Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, two spies that believed God. They rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, 
Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defenses are departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. It's not too late. It wasn't too late for these people to turn this around. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's learn a lesson of faith here. They went from a condition of unbelief, or could have gone from a condition of unbelief, absolute unbelief, where they're crying about the report that the ten spies brought back to them. They're crying because of the cities and the defenses of the cities. They're crying because of the military might of these enemies that are in the promised land. They're crying about all those things. But Caleb and Joshua stopped them and said, you don't have to have it this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't speak against the Lord. Turn around and see something else. Instead of looking at just the defenses of the cities or the defenses of the people, instead of looking at that and looking at that alone. They, see, Caleb and Joshua saw the same cities. Caleb and Joshua saw the same walls. Caleb and Joshua saw the same circumstances in the promised land that the ten did. Well, what made the difference with them and the other ten? The ten look at the problems and say the problems are too big for us. Caleb and Joshua said, well, these are the people that God said would be here. Weren't expecting the cities and weren't expecting the size of the walls. But God said the land's ours. And if God has to part the walls of the city just like he parted the Red Sea, he can do that too. In other words, they're looking at something that is unseen. That unseen thing that they're looking at is the promise of God. The promise that God made to them for the promise, concerning the promised land before they ever got there. They're looking at what God said instead of just looking at the walls alone. So they try to talk the people out of unbelief. Don't rebel against the Lord. The ten spies brought up an evil report saying the land is too much for us and God can't see us through. Caleb and Joshua said it's not too late. Turn this around right now. And start seeing the things that God said or remember the things that God said instead. Folks, I want you to understand something. That's how easy it is to go from unbelief to faith. You can choose to believe based on what God said. You can always choose to believe based on what God said. It doesn't change the circumstances. It doesn't mean the cities aren't there. It doesn't mean the walls aren't tall. It doesn't mean the armies aren't strong. It doesn't mean any of those things. It simply means you choose in the face of all those circumstances, in the face of all the physical reality, you simply choose to see, to see and look at God's word or God's promise instead of the circumstances alone. That's what Paul told us. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. He talks about how the, the sufferings and the things that we experience here in this life works for us an eternal weight of glory when we look at the things that are not seen. See, it's not just experience that causes us to grow. It's how we handle those experiences and how we put the Word of God to work in those experiences. That's what causes us to grow. And folks, this is God's system. And it's the only system that He has. It's the only way to reach God. It's the only way to approach Him. You've got to believe that He is and that He's a rewarder through faith, you have to believe that he rewards you or that you receive from him by this thing called faith, which is the exercise of authority through the words that you speak. Caleb and Joshua said, don't rebel against God. Don't let this get out of hand. You can still turn it around. 
Folks, you can go from unbelief to faith in a second. You can go from unbelief or weak faith to strong faith in a second. It's a choice. It's not something that just happens or not happens. It's a choice. And you're the one that makes it. But the congregation bade stone them with stones. Now it's too late. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? Paul writing about this to the church. In the, uh, to the church at Corinth. He talked about how that the people tempted God ten times. Now the ten times doesn't mean ten separate times. It means ten people believed the evil report. Or brought back the evil report. Ten temptations, meaning ten people that said we can't do it. God's word won't see us through. God said, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed unto them, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. These are the people that saw the plagues in Egypt, folks. These are the people that saw the hailstone mixed with fire. They saw the Red Sea turn to blood, uh, the Nile River turn to blood. They saw the locusts. They saw the boils on the flesh of the, in, their enemies, the Egyptians. They saw all these things. They saw the Passover, the death of the firstborn. They saw everything that God did and the judgment that he passed on the gods of Egypt. Why did he let them see him? Well, his intent was that they would believe who he was and that he was... They were under his care. But they refused. It wasn't that they couldn't believe. If they couldn't believe, then Caleb and Joshua couldn't have believed either. It's that they refused to believe. They refused to take the things that God had revealed of himself to the people, his people. And walk according to that. Moses intercedes for the people. And then God comes back and promises the end result. Notice verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. That's when Moses is saying, uh, talking God out of killing the people and starting over with him. Which would have been a pretty heady thing if you think about it. Because to start over with Moses meant Moses would have taken Abraham's place. But he doesn't look after his own good. He intercedes for the people. So the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But notice verse 21. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I have seen, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, that's the ten spies, and have not hearkened to my voice, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into this land, whether unto he went, and his seed shall possess it. He tells them where to go. And then verse 28, let's skip down to verse 28 for the sake of time. God says to Moses, say unto them, talking about the people, tell the people, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, 
As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now that's the second time in that passage that we read the, the phrase, as truly as I live. It's easy to read through that and just think that God is um, putting a little extra emphasis on it. But that phrase means something. As truly as God lives, how true does God live? What are the characteristics of God's existence? Well, he's eternal, and he never changes. So when he says, as truly as I live, it may mean more than this, but it means at least. Here is an, uh, an eternal and unchanging law. One translation brings out or puts it this way, this is the oracle of God. Well, the oracle of God means just that. It means it's an unchanging and eternal word or principle. And so he said two times, was it verse 20, somewhere around verse 20? He said, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Folks, that never changes. That's still a promise for us too. And then the second one was verse 28. As truly as I live, here's an eternal and unchanging law. Here's a system. Here's the principle that never changes, that will always be this way throughout all of eternity. Not just our time here on the earth, not just the church age. See, God exercised faith from heaven before there was any physical existence here on the earth. So this is an unchanging and eternal law. Now, I don't know how, how somebody will learn faith in heaven. I have no idea how that can possibly work. Because it's the trying of our faith that causes us to grow in patience. How are you going to develop patience in heaven when there's no enemy, there's no resistance? I'm at a loss on that one, folks. I have no idea. But I do know that it's an eternal and unchanging law. If God has faith in heaven apart from and outside the physical realm, then we will too because we're made in his image. Say unto them, here's the eternal and unchanging principle. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save or except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which, said, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms, and your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Folks, I want you to understand something. The refusal of that generation from age 20 and up, the refusal of that generation to believe God, to walk by faith, sentenced their sons and daughters to a wilderness existence for 40 years. See, your faith doesn't just affect you, it affects your family. Your willingness to be strong in faith will affect your family. It'll affect them for good. But the failure on your part, my part, anybody's part, to develop our faith, to grow our faith, to live by our faith will create a wilderness experience for your sons and your daughters. And I'm talking about relative to the promises of God. They may be born again. I hope that's a priority for you. But your position of faith 
will either bring blessings or curses upon your own family. It's an eternal and unchanging law. So Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, faith speaks, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart. Doubting in the heart, therefore, since the heart is the hidden man, since the heart believes according to what God has spoken, doubting in your heart must mean to believe and or say contrary to God's word. So he says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not speak otherwise. Shall not speak otherwise, but shall believe that what he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, we need to teach our children the importance of speaking God's word. It's not just important for us to speak it. It's important for us to teach them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for establishing a system whereby we can know you and receive from you. I thank you, Lord, that you have made provisions of the work of Jesus for any and every aspect of our lives. I thank you that your word is always true, and because it is, it always comes to pass when we believe it and speak it. Father, I thank you for revealing to us not only the importance of speaking your word, but giving us confidence that we can trust you to bring that word to pass. We thank you, Father, that we have what we say in Jesus' name. Let's all stand. Let's end the service by saying a couple of things. Say this after me. I am a child of God. I have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I take hold by faith every promise of God. Everything that Jesus purchased with his blood is mine. Therefore, I declare not only am I righteous by the blood of Jesus, but I am healed in body by the stripes of Jesus. I declare that the punishment of poverty was paid. Therefore, I have abundance. Everything I put my hand to prospers. And I am surrounded by the favor of God. God's word works. My words come to pass when I speak his word. Amen. Folks, let me ask you a question. I want you to imagine something for just a moment. Let's imagine that just in a, in a fraction of a second of time, Jesus appeared to us right now in the flesh. There he is. He just shows up. And he turns to look at each one of us and says, from this moment forward, 
Everything you say will come to pass and then disappears. Kind of gives you goosebumps just thinking about it, doesn't it? What would that mean to you? I dare say we'd start thinking about what we're saying. But folks, Jesus doesn't have to appear and tell us that. He's already told us. And it's just as true because it's the word of God as it would be if Jesus appeared and said it. From this moment forward, everything you say will come to pass. That is the unchanging and eternal law of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Come on back and be with us for the special prayer and praise service tonight. And you're dismissed.